0: Bruxy, with all my respect to you, this is the Jesus look. (laughs) I mean, you know, the guy was in my corner of the carpet. (laughs) So let me uh, share with you a story. This is a story of a family that lived on the outskirts of one of the most ancient cities. But they lived in modern times. A family that had everything they needed. Good life, upper middle class, private schooling, jobs for the father and for the mother. A family that though they represented a a certain ethnic religious group, actually lived in peace with the rest of their neighbors, who were diverse in their ethnicities and their religions. Their whole future was set for them. The mother actually was planning the future of every one of her seven children. The oldest wasn't even a teenager, and the youngest was two years old. War broke out in that land. The father of the family was killed by a sniper. He didn't even know who he was, just shot him. He wasn't involved in the war at all. When one of the ethnic groups took over that neighborhood, they decided to kick out all the ones who were different. And so that family was different, and they were kicked out. They became refugees. They lost everything. The father, their home, their property, their future. The mother, of these seven children had a choice. Now that she has lost everything, what was she going to give to her children? It's like standing on a crossroads. One easy thing to give them is hatred is a call for them to revenge and retaliate what that other group did to them. Anger. To justify the fact that she was not able to defend her family and her husband by blaming the other for what happened to them. The other side, more difficult to give them Jesus. Love. This mother actually taught those children that revenge and retaliation will have no place in our life. And as followers of Christ, we will also not remain silent when we face and see injustice, but we will be peacemakers we will actually seek reconciliation with those who did this to us. Her statement that she carried for her life till she passed away was that justice is when we make peace and reconcile with those who have done the injustice to us. What does it mean to be a peacemaker? What does it mean when Jesus calls us to be peacemakers? In the last two days I've been thinking a lot about this concept and I'm here to challenge myself and to challenge you in the notion of peacemaking. We all know the verse from Matthew 5, Blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called the children of God. One way of looking at peacemaking, which I think is very common, is that when we see conflict happening somewhere between two people, between two communities, between two ethnic groups, between two nations, we feel a responsibility to go into that conflict and bring those communities together to resolve their conflict. This is how many of us look at peacemaking. And I want to challenge even that notion, to say, is this really all what peacemaking is about? And I'm not a theologian, I'm not a, like, a reader of the gospel in details like many of the speakers here, but I started asking like, myself a question. Which two ethnic groups or religious groups or identity groups did Jesus engage in peacemaking with between them when he was with us? I actually couldn't think of anybody. So I want to answer this question of peacemaking from sort of a different view. And I want to present two dimensions of answering the question what it means to be a peacemaker. The first one is personal, and the second one is personal. One of the things, when we look at the Beatitudes, one of the things that we have learned to look at, which I think is a very Western approach of looking at the Beatitudes, is that we separate each of the Beatitudes as if it is a bumper sticker. You know, blessed are the, for they shall the. And that becomes its own sort of label, identity, And we look towards the meek, we look at the word, towards who seek righteousness, we look at the word peacemakers as if it's their own bumper sticker. And my challenge recently was to begin to look at the Beatitudes as if they are one, as if they are a process, and this is the first point, of personal transformation. You know, one of the things about Jesus is that we could look at Jesus and say, Jesus was simple, but Jesus wasn't easy. What he was teaching us, what he was asking us to do, was simple in the teachings, but not easy in practice. He called us for personal transformation. And so I'm just going to sort of state the process of the Beatitudes, in a sense, putting them into one sentence. The first one, Jesus starts with blessed are the poor in spirit. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? For me, poor means having nothing. Poor people have nothing. When I'm hungry, I'm poor, I have no food. I have no income, I have no money. But to recognize that I am poor, and the moment I recognize that I am poor, that means I am seeking to fulfill that emptiness in me. So I think the first thing Jesus asks us to do to become peacemakers is to let go, to be poor. The one after that is, blessed are the ones who mourn. So he doesn't want us just to let go. He wants us even to mourn what we let go of. Because it's easy to let go of something, and then the next time I find it, I grab it. But he wants us to completely mourn. Mourn means we recognize that it has ended. There is death in what I had. And so we started this process of being poor and then becoming a mourn, uh, mourning what we have lost. But then there is this beginning of meekness, humbleness. I fully acknowledge where I am now. I know nothing. Then it's merciful. Then it's pure in heart. This process, so you go down and then this opening begins to... Arise in you, pure in heart. Now there is this whiteness in the emptiness. And at that level, in your personal transformation process, then you can become a peacemaker. This is the next point after pure in heart. Because at that time, peacemaking needs to have purity of heart. Peacemaking needs to have a place where you do not judge, you do not condemn. You actually love. That's what purity of heart. It's very interesting that it doesn't end with being a peacemaker because there's a test. If you are a really good peacemaker or not, what is the test? The next one, persecution. You will be persecuted. Because in a sense, when you're a peacemaker and you are only a child of God, that means, and has been said throughout this morning, you no longer identify with anybody. And because you no longer identify with anybody except being the child of God, you will be persecuted by everyone around you. Including the tribe that you belong to. And then, you rejoice. You've passed the test of personal transformation. And so for me, I look at that concept of peacemaking. It's not what I do from here to there. And And I sometimes ask myself, living in the Palestinian context, why do all these Americans come to be peacemakers for us? All these churches, they come to make peace between Palestinians and Israelis. And look at their conflicts. (laughs) If you're not able to make peace in your community, who are you to come and make peace in my community? Is it feeling guilt? Is it feeling shame? Is it feeling that our conflict is easier than your conflict? Peacemaking is this notion of being fully transformed in your person and your spirit where you begin by making peace with God making peace with yourself, making peace with those around you, making peace with those who are different than you in your community. People come to the Middle East to meet Muslims, and they don't even know their neighbor who is a Muslim, because they're afraid that their other white neighbor, the Christian neighbor, might see them walk into the Muslim house and be judged, condemned, Talked about, rumors. Where's the purity of heart in this process? The second level of peacemaking is personal engagement. So for me, it's personal transformation, going through a continuous process every day of waking up and cleansing yourself, purifying your heart, becoming poor so that you could be filled by that spirit of grace. But then the second level is engagement. So what does Jesus call us to do when it comes to how we deal with our enemies? You know, growing up in the context of carrying this identity called the Palestinian, I grew up with a lot of space to hate Israelis for what they were doing to us. I lived, I currently live, and tomorrow when I go back, unless God comes on, my, on the way flying into Jordan, I will be living under Israeli military occupation. My rights, my freedom is restricted and limited, in addition to the tremendous violence that exists In the land, both Palestinians and Israelis practicing this violence against each other. Growing up in a Gandhian, Kingian mindset and trying to put Jesus into the context of my identity and my conflict, I grew up saying that my engagement in nonviolence is exactly what Jesus would do. If Jesus was in my shoes and living in the situation I was living in, he would engage in nonviolent activism and nonviolent resistance against the occupation. He would stand with the oppressed against the oppressor. He would stand with the occupied against the occupier. He would stand with those who are facing injustice against those who are committing the injustice. And like we know, you could always find verses to justify all of this. And I think I said it once too many times for Jesus' liking that he actually had to wake me up. Slap me, actually. And say, enough using me to be against somebody else. I am never and will never be against anybody. And I love you and I love the Israelis the same. And so what I call you to do, Sammy, is one thing. To love your enemy for me again in my limited readings of scripture the thing that I saw what Jesus said when relating to the enemy is to love them he didn't say make peace with them he didn't say resolve your conflict with them he didn't say negotiate a peace treaty with them he said love them and as we know love is is oneness Bring them into oneness. Become one with those who you have labeled as your enemy. Because the moment there is oneness, there is no animosity because there is no us and them. There's only one in the body of Christ. So how do I as a Palestinian love my enemy? I mean, there are many soldiers around and I can choose to go to soldiers and open my arms up and say, come on. <laughs> I love you, man. Come on. Give me a hug. Or there's another way. Which this is not a bad way. I don't know if I will survive that. But maybe loving the enemy means to get to know who your enemy is. You know, it's easy for us to label somebody based on the action that they do. Somebody hurts me He becomes identified as a person who commits hurt. Somebody steals, he becomes identified as a thief. His whole identity becomes that. Somebody rapes, he's a rapist. His whole identity becomes that. And I think what Jesus calls us to do is to begin to ask, maybe what is behind that action? That person is not that action because I created that person. I created that community. I created that nation. What is behind that that makes them do these things? And one thing that I saw Jesus realize more and more, and that's why the greatest thing he did was healing. And he healed not to show off. He healed because he wanted to free people from that that existed in their past, that prevented them from living out their humanity the way God intended that for it to be. So I think the challenge that I live in and the challenge I want to give you is as we look into the people around us who we have labeled as enemies, even family members, maybe to look also into what Jesus was calling us to do and to begin to ask, as peacemakers, what is the healing work that we need to engage in so that they can be free to live out their humanity. Thank you and God bless you.